Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. You know, our brain is a part of the body right. and we need to pursue good brain health. I mean, that's, maybe mm. that'd be a better word mm. in, in thinking about it, right? Mm. A, a better way to frame that is that we need to keep our brains healthy. Why? Because they're a gift from God. We have to be good stewards of our brains, just mm. like we're good stewards of our whole body. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to be mindful about how do we take good care of what God has given us. It is a gift. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Russell Berry. We've all experienced the ups and downs of emotions, yet we often don't talk about the true impact of the feelings we're facing. Our brain health is just as important as our physical health, but it's so much easier often to talk to someone about a physical injury rather than a mental wound. Today, I'm talking with mental health expert, Dr. Christina Edmondson, for some insight and practical advice that comes from her own life experiences. Her passion for helping people began at an early age when she witnessed the mental health issues affecting people on the public bus she was riding as a kid. A little bit more about Dr. Edmondson. She's also one of the hosts from Truth's Table, a popular podcast for and by Black women. She holds a Ph.D. in counseling and psychology from Tennessee State University and a master's degree from the University of Rochester in family systems and a bachelor's degree in sociology from Hampton University with an emphasis in race, class and gender. For over a decade, Christina has served in a variety of roles, including being the Dean of Intercultural Student Development at Calvin University. She's also a certified cultural intelligence facilitator, public speaker, and former mental health therapist. Before we get into all those topics, however, let's ask Dr. Edmondson where you're from. I grew up in an urban context that also had like a splash of Southern hospitality. So I always, I describe Baltimore to people, particularly folks who've never been and actually don't really know people in Baltimore. Oftentimes what they have is caricatures from television shows. Mm. And usually they are television shows that are depicting crime and violence and disenfranchisement. Like The Wire. Like The Wire, right? Um, And I always tell people that Baltimore to me was a bit more like the television show Rock, which starred Charles Dutton. Yes, love that. And so he was in this kind of this brownstone. He was this blue-collar guy. Mm -hmm. But he lived this kind of economically... um, in terms of economic status, this integrative life mm-hmm. that exposed him to 
kind of the elite of the black community mm-hmm. as well as the down and out of the black community as well as like there's an episode with like the criminal element mm-hmm. <laughs> in the city as well where he has to stand up against this uh, neighborhood drug dealer and I think of Baltimore in that way in, in some ways that it exposed me to a great deal of diversity within the black community. Gotcha. Diversity of ideas, diversity of religious and theological perspectives. Mm-hmm. And growing up in a city where you're the principal of your school, the mayor of your city, they are all black people. Mm-hmm. It shapes you to have particular expectations. For me, it did mm-hmm. about black people in leadership mm-hmm. and the responsibility of leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know the city as, you know, the place that gave us Billie Holiday and its association with people yes. like Thurgood Marshall. Oof. And so oh um, when I was a kid, all the benches had Baltimore, the city that reads written on them. Wow. And so so I have a completely different frame yeah. <laughs> of this city. And I was raised by a public school educator in the city of Baltimore. So okay. I, uh, you know, went to one of the oldest black churches in that city, New Shiloh Baptist Church. My pastor, the late Reverend Harold Carter um, Sr. was a mighty preacher. Okay. And so I I assumed that everyone could preach. (laughs) I thought that that's what preaching was. But he was also a person that was mentored by Dr. King. And he's also a person that would help to host Billy Graham revivals. And so this intersection Mm. of Mm. both um, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, this lived embodied faith, are just deeply rooted into That's, what I think we're supposed to be living. Right, like like that was just normal. <laughs> Isn't that funny how like when you grow up with certain experiences, right. you just feel like that's the way it's supposed to be. Yes. That, you know what I mean? And so like you talked about, you know, that found its way in the church. Uh, how did you find your way in the church? Yeah. Or maybe a different way to put it. Yeah. How did the church find its way? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So um, I think some of my earliest memories were having a sense that Jesus was real Okay. And that Jesus was soon returning. So the seeds of the gospel that this God who is fully sufficient, a God who is not lonely, a God, a God who did not need us okay. <laughs> um, out of love, created a people mm. for him to love and to love each other. Mm-hmm. And that kind of gospel seed of that, despite um, my sin, that same God who loves me would give himself up for me to claim me. There is no greater love Hmm. than that. And the seeds of that gospel message from my earliest memories of attending the church that I told you about began to grow and erupt when I was probably in late adolescent all the way into college. Those seeds took root much more deeply and that gospel message became one that was my own. And that was was that just a you use the imagery of plants was that just like the natural effect of it being watered and over time Mm -hmm. or was there some moment something that Mm -hmm. happened that caused it to accelerate more at that time i think there are a couple different things but one of them certainly you know when i look back on it was probably the consistent witness of my mother okay and i don't say that to imply that christian witness has to be perfect mother was clearly an imperfect woman but my mother is someone who, you know, as a child, I remember finding her, if I was looking for her, I remember finding her in the middle of the day, mm. on a Saturday, on her knees, on the side of her bed, just praying. I remember my mother just being incredibly peaceable, but honest. So she can tell the truth, <laughs> which I think is a very important Christian value. Um, she can tell the truth and she can also in that same breath reach out and say, but I love you. And like really mean it. Wow. So that Christian witness, I mm. and she would credit that to Jesus. 
Okay. There's no doubt in my mind she would do it now. That is Jesus. That mm. is the spirit at work. No, mm. that's not me. It was conspicuous. It became striking. This is something unique about her. This unique feature of, of what she's saying is Jesus mm. making her this way. And certainly as I began to face my own like teenage angst and drama and dating and all these things, I could look to my mother and be like, but Jesus makes the difference. And to the extent that I would admire characteristics of her, I knew she would credit the Lord. Got it. And I knew that I needed the spirit of the living God to shape me, (laughs) to make me more like that. So I credit her witness in helping to shape who I am. There's no doubt about it. I know that oftentimes people who get into counseling have a point of reference where that aspect of life began to make sense. Do you even see looking back in your life where maybe there were some connections that you were made growing up that opened up the importance or the value of mental health in your world? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of therapists, just like a lot of preachers that go to seminary, (laughs) (laughs) they go to these places sometimes looking for answers. Oftentimes the answers are related to what they're wrestling with in their soul or maybe about their own family system, something they're trying to understand. Maybe somebody they're trying to win or (laughs) to understand. And so I think that certainly is somewhere within my narrative. But typically the way I, I think about the roots of my interest in understanding mental health and understanding family systems and wanting to create a healthy communities is um, growing up and probably as early as the age of nine and 10, catching public transportation. Okay. And there's something about not catching the yellow bus to school, but okay. catching like the, the bus bus with the That's community, yes. <laughs> <laughs> with all the members of the community. And as protective as my parents were, I'm always like, they let me catch the subway? <laughs> like, and how old? Um, the youngest that you were? Yeah, I think the, definitely 10, maybe okay. even younger. Okay. So it was starting, um, I went to middle school somewhat early. And so middle school and up, that was the means of transportation to wow. get to school. And in those spaces... I saw all kinds of stuff. I mean, I saw poverty. I saw what I realize now is probably untreated, unmedicated forms of mental illness. Mm. I saw domestic violence. Mm. I saw people conning other people. (laughs) I'll never forget catching the subway with a really good friend. Her mom had given her like a whole crisp $20 bill Mm. and watching her get conned out of it right there. I was like, no, no, don't play the game. Don't do it. Oh, like the game. What kind of game was it? Was it the the one with the car? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, the the three-car Monty. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, okay, here's the queen. Exactly. And he got her. Yeah. So all of those things were like life lessons learned on public transportation. And, you know, and at the same time, I got to observe all kinds of dynamics about parenting and parenting styles. Mm. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So, I mean, you see the kid that's like running all around and nobody's saying anything. And then you also see the parent who's really kind of harsh and stern like he can't even hardly breathe so these extreme poles extreme styles and so that experience I I actually wrote about that in one of my graduate school applications they asked you like how did you come into this and I was like let me tell you about what it's like to catch public transportation as a kid and then to learn about my own what we call now as a grown up my own emotional regulation like Mm. managing my own anxiety being around a bus yeah break that down (laughs) I don't know emotional regulation (laughs) that sounds like something I need to know you're doing it all the time yeah getting our feelings together When I'm in a space where there's high-level anxiety, there's new people, there's a huge crowd that comes on the bus, there's an argument on the bus, there's a fight that breaks out on the bus, the bus driver gets mad at us because we're too loud, it puts us off the bus, right? All of that, just feeling all the feels, managing who I am and discerning who I can trust and who I can't trust, 
all of that stuff I got from mm. catching public transportation. Wow. That's <laughs> public transportation. So how about that? You got an education on the way to school. Exactly. <laughs> oh, really? That, those were some real life survival <laughs> skills that I learned on the way okay. to school. Okay. So then what was your school experience like? You mentioned yeah. that you got to middle school early so yeah. did you get skipped or? well I started school er- somewhat okay. early because of the way my birthday fell right. my mother was in education yep. and um, I think probably moved some things around yes yeah, oh you won't get this school work. yeah um, <laughs> quite committed to that um, because of my mother and other family members who were heavily involved in education a lot of ways they had a heavy hand in tracking me to the right opportunities, the right teachers. They knew the questions to ask. They were very serious women. (laughs) And uh, by the time I got to high school, I went to the oldest all-girl public school left in the country. And it's Western High. It's located in Baltimore. And okay. so we tend to have a whole lot of pride about. <laughs> I, yeah, it's as you look, can see. the oldest, <laughs> the oldest. all girl high school we in the country. We take ourselves very seriously. I see. And, um, <laughs> but by the time I was there, the school, um, you know, it had a legacy of segregation. It's, you know, wow. 100 plus years old. So mm. by the time I was there, it may have been, oh, 75, 80% African-American young women who came from all parts of the city of Baltimore. So from families of great affluence to families Mm. who um, were the working poor. Nevertheless, it put me in an environment where the person who was the smartest in math, the smartest in science, Mm. the uh, best communicator, all female. Um, And it was assumed that, um, yeah, you would show up and you would be competent and that you wouldn't embarrass the rest of us. (laughs) Right, so it was there was there was a really kind of um, a burden of fulfilling the legacy of the school, despite what people's backgrounds were, what mm. they were overcoming. There was just this expectation that we were here to not settle and to expect the best out of ourselves. And so I'm really grateful for yeah. that school experience, that school environment. Um, wow, that sounds like such a place to thrive in. And I hear the one word that you said that seems to also be a significant one, especially in your education environment, yeah. is expectations. Right. Your mom, your, the women in your eye. And <laughs> oh, I know what Brenda, that's like. Brenda, that child, Brenda. that te- <laughs> that parent-teacher meeting. Like, my, yes. I remember uh, I ended up being second in my class mm-hmm. and uh, my senior year. And she was still showing up at every single one. And the teacher was like... <laughs> He's fine. Like, and she's like, well, what can he improve in? Yeah, my like, mom was right, real invested. And I, it sounds like that was the same experience. And, but the thing that that does is that even when you have a bad day or a bad season that you're in or something that you're struggling, it calls you to up. And, yeah. to say that, and that sounds like you didn't just have that at home. But mm-hmm. then when you got to the school, you had it all around you. Yeah, for sure. And I don't think of myself as an overachiever by any means. Right. I was not doing it big. Okay. I was definitely in the middle right. of the group. But just being around that kind of environment was right. inspiring. My dad was much more chill than my mom. Okay. So I'm grateful for that balance. <laughs> yes. And I'm also grateful for kind of his vote of confidence. My right. dad was always like, oh, yeah, you can do whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely a, a daddy's girl in that okay. sense, too. Um, so grateful for both my parents, my mom kind of driving me yep. and my dad saying, well, it really is who you are okay. that has value. Now, how did I mean, was there a point in which something you experienced in this season also pointed toward a value or inclination toward mental health? Mm-hmm. I was raised by a woman who had lost both her parents before she was an adult. And so the ways in which that shaped my mother's personality, the way that shaped her commitment to difficult things, like mm. her endurance, her mm. persistence. So I had a strong sense of the way that grief 
in the trauma of grief can shape and misshape us. But the way also that hardship can kind of create what we call, you know, we think about post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, there's also kind of this reframe that we look at, which is kind of post-traumatic growth. The way that hardship for some people actually can reveal really who they are and it can really push them. It can really inspire them. And I think I was raised by a mom in many ways who had a lot of post-traumatic growth. Okay. So I got to observe that. I got to observe that in her personality and her dorms, the way that she worked through her own sadness, her own, the own losses that she had. And then I got to observe my dad, who was raised by a single mom in Baltimore in a really poor, disadvantaged space. Mm. Um, and how that shaped him, how the distance and estrangement from his own biological father shaped him, the pain of that, the pain of overcompensating in that. Mm. And the way that that works out and how we see and then raise our own children. And I would be one of those kids. Mm -hmm. So just observationally, even looking at the people who love me and shape me, it gave me an interest in understanding how the family structure, the family system that we are part of, how their stories don't get stuck in time. Their stories, their experiences, their grandparents and great grandparents, they come right into who we are, right into our literal DNA and our wow. emotional DNA into who we are. That, that's something we don't oftentimes think about. I tend to think about my grandparents or my great grandparents stories as like factoids, like in yeah. history mm -hmm. of like, oh, they did this happened. Mm -hmm. Not like what's the emotional and psychological way that these things have shaped mm -hmm. in, in the field of psychology mm -hmm. and like, I guess what most people experience when they think about counseling, how prominent of a lens or perspective is that? Yeah, it's really prominent. Okay. Even if you're working with a counselor who is focused kind of on a here and now approach right. that's thinking, OK, this is your problem today. Right. How can we help you fix your problem today? Most counselors are still going to be mindful, even when you're just doing your intake of they're going to ask questions like, is there a family history of certain mental illnesses? That shows how connected we are through the, the narratives that have shaped who we are. I would imagine in uh, dealing among very communal peoples mm -hmm. like black folk, yeah. that that has even more significance to it because of how communal people think of who they are. Yeah. Is that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And who we think of as family mm. is different from culture to culture, right? So uh. when you think about at least stereotypically middle class, upper middle class, kind of white dominant culture. We think about family in a very nuclear way. Right. Um, mom, dad. Mom, dad, kid, dog. <laughs> you know, right. like, you know. Uh. But depending on the cultural context, there are women that when I go back to visit my parents, we are definitely not blood relation, but yeah, they are was, definitely <laughs> aunt Denise. I was and... about to ask you, like, have you, like, that's like a common universal experience. Like, I got aunts yeah. who aren't really. For sure. But we, they aunts. Oh, yeah. They, like, they will break out their checkbook. They're like, they will help you with textbooks for school. Right. Like, these are. Right. And obviously that comes from being a part of a people group who endured the transatlantic slave trade, who right. endured being sold from plantation to plantation and right. having to create family anew okay. and, and cling to family anew, claim right. family for yourself. Right. So it sounds like, I mean, because a stereotype that oftentimes exists with people who get into the field of psychology yeah. or counseling is like they're working out to some stuff. And for so sure. They, they just are, I'm sure everybody is, yeah. Right, but <laughs> in your own story, it sounds like part of it for you, the interest kind of emerged more out of observation and curiosity, not necessarily the working out like the primary thing wasn't some trauma that you had. to yeah. try to... No, it, yeah, I don't think it was directly trauma rooted, right. although when I look back and think of, huh, 
this is what shaped this hypervigilance in me. Mm. This is what shaped this longing for justice. This is what triggers me and causes this feeling of anxiety or like an, an elephant is stepping on my chest. I can, but then again, I've been trained over a series of time right. <laughs> to be as observational as that. Right. Um, and, and in my case, which is consistent with lots of people with high rates of religiosity as well as people of color, I have to listen to my body oftentimes to know how I feel or to know what I'm thinking and not the other way around. So stress for me is felt physically. And then I go like, man, I'm tired. My chest hurts. Like my, my neck hurts. And then I'm like, what is going on? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm really stressed out. Okay. <laughs> so I, work, I have to work backwards by listening. So you said those, body. particularly with high rates of religiosity, yeah. what was mm-hmm. the other thing you said? And, and people of color. And, and some people, of, people color. of color. So mm-hmm. what's the alternative way of dealing that people usually... Yeah, highly, check in with themselves. Highly cognitive. So looking for the, or listening to the narrative of thoughts or maybe complete avoidance or numbing. I see. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay. At what point did, and I don't know, maybe this was from the beginning or did something happen where you kind of merged or intersected mm-hmm. culture, mm-hmm. ethnicity, faith, and mental yeah. health? Like how did those things come together? So... In the counseling world, uh, people talk about this technique or they talk about this concept called the self of the therapist. Mm. So it's what we bring in the space. Okay. It's not a blank slate. So as we think about like a Freud, you know, like so no, it's not a blank slate. You know, my very being, my very presence in a room when I was counseling people could trigger all kinds of reactions from them. Mm. Just my being, my my femaleness, my perception of what my age might have been, perceptions of what my race or ethnic background might be, created all kinds of opportunities to hear more about that person's story, just my being. And part of self of the therapist is to know all the pieces that make up who I am. And the significant pieces that make up who (laughs) I am is uh, my faith convictions, that I desperately need Jesus, (laughs) that Jesus loves me, which is great. I'm glad that is happening in mutuality. I need the Lord. The Lord loves me. And that I am a woman and that I am a black woman in America who's Mm. connected to a particular history and lineage. That's what shows up when I walk in the room. My grandmother shows up when I Mm. walk in the room. The African ancestry that I'm disconnected from, that shows up when I walk into the room. Mm. Um, And my faith convictions about justice and about love and about grace, that shows up. Mm. And so to me, I think it's just good practice to be aware of that. Even if it's not discussed, as the clinician, I need to know that's a part of who I am. When we come back, Dr. Edmondson will share her perspective on what she calls Black dignity and embracing her identity as a Black woman. More of her story is coming next on Where You're From. If you're enjoying Where You're From, would you take a moment to write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like iTunes and Google promote highly rated shows. So a one-sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five-star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help and keep listening for more of Where You're From. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders, to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com 
today. This is Mary Jo Clark, and I'm one of the producers for Where You From. Before we jump back into our conversation with Dr. Christina Edmondson, I wanted to share a teaser from our next episode with Carolyn Custis James. This is Where You From. There's a story playing out right now in Syria because the war in Syria has destroyed a generation of men. And there are women who never used to go outside of their homes without their husbands. The husbands would even do the grocery shopping and, you know, sometimes they just would be at home. Now there's no husband and their children are hungry. And, you know, they have to figure out how they're going to get a job to support their children because there are no men and they're at risk. There's nobody to protect them. They've got to protect themselves and their families. And the widows in India, and I use this when I teach the Book of Ruth, they used to burn them when their husbands died. And the widows, that their families, if they throw them out, they're beggars for the rest of their lives. And they say, this is not life. We all died the day our husbands died. Welcome back to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. Before we hit play on part two of my conversation with Dr. Christina Edmondson, just a quick reminder that the show notes are available in the podcast description. The show notes not only contain the talking points of today's episode, but you will also find a link to learn more about Christina. And there's a link to a free documentary series I did called In Pursuit of Jesus. Jesus is one of the most talked about figures in history. Some love him and some hate him. And every country in the world has some understanding of who Jesus is and why he came. In this film series, I travel around the world exploring how people from countries like Sweden, South Africa, and Argentina view Jesus and his influence on the world. And you can watch all seven episodes for free right now. Just copy the link in the podcast description or visit whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot now let's get back into our conversation where Dr. Emerson explains embracing her identity as a black woman to encourage us all to embrace our own identities. Here's part two of our conversation with Dr. Edmondson on where you're from. Usually when I talk about black dignity, I'll put it in contrast to something like white supremacy. Okay. And I will say that when black people are talking about that they have value and God didn't make no junk, like these kind mm. of expressions of my black church childhood experiences, <laughs> or that black is beautiful, they're not speaking about that in a supremacist way. They are speaking about that in a way in which they agree with God's providential hand shaping them into who they are. I see. And that is a shaping of of a person that is no greater or no better than anybody else. Mm. So I usually contrast black dignity mm -hmm. with the idolatry of white supremacy, that it is right for 
all peoples to agree with God's providential hand at work, shaping them through the cultural narratives that they're a part of. Right. And there's a difference between valuing it uh-huh. and seeing it as an idol Got it. Um, and using it to hoard over other people. Which I think you kind of gave us a implied definition of white supremacy. But if you could just yeah. directly describe that since you're putting it in contrast <laughs> to the black dignity. So when we think about white supremacy, we're thinking about an ideology and a worldview that claims that white identity, which is constructed in all kinds of different ways, you can check out the U.S. census and see how it's been defined throughout history in all kinds of remixed ways, but it's a belief system that it is superior Mm. and superior to other groups, which allows for or condones the racial disparities or stratification that we see, where it blames the injustices on lies about internalized inferiority of groups of people of color. And it either presents itself as the standard of normalcy or almost like in a divine sense. Um, That's why I use the language of idolatry to talk about it. And it's a lie. It's not true. Um, What we will see in glory is a representation of every tribe, nation, and tongue. We will not see every caste system, Mm. but we will be united with our brothers and sisters that reflect the entire globe. And Mm. and certainly Europe is a part of that. Okay. And so what place do you see black dignity playing itself out in the context of mental health? Yeah. So when people are able to, in the midst of a world where they're are white supremacist (laughs) notions and belief systems when they're able to push back on that idolatry and say, nope, I agree with God about who I am. Mm -hmm. I agree that in the beginning, God made people. He told them to shape and create culture. That job didn't change because the fall happened. We still are doing that. Mm -hmm. It's just harder (laughs) to do much, much harder to Mm -hmm. do that. And I agree with God that God is working through every bit of who I am for Mm -hmm. God's glory and that I don't have to pretend that I'm not black Mm. uh, because white supremacy says that it's insufficient or deviant. Mm. But instead, I can say, thank God for the Mm. fact that I'm of African descent. Thank God that I descend from a people who went from being human trafficked to being refugees in the own country they were born in through the Great Migration and who... um, found their way to churches and worshiped the King of Kings. Mm -hmm. I am grateful for that legacy. I'm grateful for that history. Um, And that's what I mean by black dignity. Got Mm -hmm. it. And that sounds like a combination of not hiding or brushing Mm -hmm. off the sense of pain Mm -hmm. and the scars of the past. For sure. But also not wallowing in the despair and the kind of sense of pity. It's like, this is part of my story, but it's not all of my story. Oh, for sure. You said something once. uh, You said laughter and trauma live in the same building. Yeah. And I thought that was... For me, they do, for sure. Like, (laughs) break that down. Yeah, so just... So a lot of times we talk about trauma, laughter on Truth Stable, and Mm -hmm. I talk about it in other spaces. I was running a group study recently using a book by um, a woman named Sheila Wise uh, Rowe, who has a book on healing racial trauma. It's a great book, and I ran a a month-long... book study on it and at our last meeting people are saying all these stories about their encounters with racism and mistreatment I mean it's ugly it's sad right Mm -hmm. and I decided to start the meeting by having people go around and tell a story of an encounter around racial difference and maybe even mistreatment based on race that within the story there's something funny okay right not that racism is funny. That's right. definitely not funny. Right. Stop but that with, right now. But within the story. <laughs> but within the story. Right. And we went around this table and people shared. I mean, it was almost like you were listening to the best of the best of black comedians. And honestly, I would argue that some of the 
in American culture in the last hundred years, some of the kind of smartest social critique, mm-hmm. challenging comedy has come from oh, from African American. Yes, have come from African American yeah, comedians, yeah. right? And I think that's because that's kind of socialized and built in to. Mm. If we're going to keep living and breathing and enduring, Mm. we're going to have to have some laughing within Mm. that. It's going to be necessary. And, of course, I think about the Proverbs passage that talks about um, the woman who looks at the future and laughs. Mm. And to some extent, from from a faith perspective, when God is in control and when this whole life will be but a vapor, there are elements of it, even in great adversity, that call me to look at it and go, <laughs> one day you're going to be so far behind me. Mm. One day the craziness of this mm. moment will not even be in my memory because mm. I will have worshipped for three, four, five, six eternities. And, and even though you, wow. you challenge me and you cause me grief now, you are going to be under the feet of mm. my Lord. I mean, like, so that laughter is also a way that we boldly, like, right. stand up for the, like, yeah. <laughs> this, and, and the about God laughing. Oh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So this thing becomes, you know, so mental health becomes this profession, uh, this kind of point of emphasis in your doctoral studies clinically. So tell us a little bit about why is there a stigma on counseling, on mental health, and how, like, have you even experienced people responding to you in a way in which you feel that stigma? Yes, yes, yes. All the things. And here's the thing. There's a stigma. I know about the stigma. I've done research around the stigma. And I at times have held the stigma. Like as a clinician, I at times have been like, man, I need to see somebody. I need to work on this. And I'm like, ah, do I really want to do that? I mean, like, Mm. and I do the work. So I have a lot of empathy Mm. (laughs) um, for why that might be. And I think... One is that we make value systems about people's mental health. We make a value judgment, value judgment. Exactly. Like so a characterological statement about who they are. Okay. Based on how their emotions are functioning. Okay. And so if someone is really sad or really angry, we say something about who they are. Can you really be grateful for what God has given but struggling with depression? Like, mm. are you a good Christian? Are you mm. really grateful? You must not believe the promises of God if yeah. you are sad or depressed. Absolutely. That's kind of what the assumption. Absolutely. So you find that that stigma, because that stigma ex- exists outside of the faith community in right. the U.S. Do you find that it's more prevalent in the faith community? Yeah, I think we're worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think believers are worse. Okay. I think Christians are worse. Yeah. And I also think that the local churches have to figure out, and, th- and this varies across Christian uh, tradition, but knowing what the local church is Mm -hmm. and what the local church is not, knowing what scripture is and what scripture is not, which can be highly controversial, but sometimes people look to scripture like scripture is God graciously condescending, bringing us his word to reveal, to reveal Jesus to us. Right. That's different than revealing to us how to treat back pain. Or mm. how to how to fix my car. So even when I'm thinking about how we use scripture sometimes in spaces, we look at people who are struggling with a physical illness, you know, a biological issue, and we're like, well, you haven't studied God's word enough. Mm. And that is that is an unloving refrain to say. And it also is an inappropriate use and expectation 
of the first and foremost intention of scripture. Mm. So yes, there is truth and wisdom and light right. that has a illuminating and healing quality for the person who is suffering when they um, right. are with depression, for example, when they read the word of God. Absolutely. Right. But we don't just tell them that like read your Bible. Right. And it's going to be okay. It's like, <laughs> it's like when I go to my mechanic and I go, so like, Hey, do you know how to work on mm-hmm. Toyotas? And he's like, yeah, I had a great quiet time today. So <laughs> right. and you're like, but do you have you have training yes. in how to make a car work? Yeah. I go to a doctor and say, hey, I'm having yeah. back pain. They go, you know what? I went to seminary. Mm-hmm. And you're like, that's cool. <laughs> right. But do you know how right. to fix a broken back? And so how much of that do you think? And like, like real talk, yeah. right? There are ideologies, right? You sure. think about Freud or you think about, yeah, yeah. you know, other concepts that come yeah. into the realm of secular psychology. For sure. That would seem to be not coming from a Christian worldview. Sure. If some of those people are like the great luminaries of yeah. a discipline, how do you navigate through yeah. being like, well, some of the things that may have informed their ideas mm-hmm. aren't necessarily biblical, but some of the practices might be helpful so how do you sure sure so all truth is god's truth Mm -hmm. and god's been using all kinds of people for a mighty long time Uh, thanks be to god that god works through deeply imperfect people to bring forth nuggets of truth that need to be critically discerned and engaged and i think what one of the things that we have to remember is that we have brains (laughs) when we talk about like our minds well that's our brain (laughs) that's our brain you know our brain is a part of the body right. and we need to pursue good brain health. I mean, maybe that's maybe mm. that'd be a better word to, mm. in, in thinking about it. Right. Mm. A, a better way to frame that is that we need to keep our brains healthy. Why? Because they're a gift from God. We have to be good stewards of our brains. It's mm. like we're good stewards of our whole body. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to be mindful about how do we take good care of what God has given us? It is a gift. Okay. What does it mean to take good care of these brains mm. that we have? And our brains are impacted by things like sugar. They're impacted oh. by, by screens. Oh. They're impacted by unresolved Ooh. trauma. Um, they're impacted by head injuries, concussions. Right. We're biological right. beings. <laughs> um, okay. So when we see ourselves that way, I think it can help okay. to shift. All right. At the risk of potentially alienating, but also maybe helping some folks. Okay. You mentioned screens. <laughs> this will be your job. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned screens. Let me double click real mm-hmm. quick. What is a way that you feel like screen usage is because I've heard I've read a lot about Mm -hmm. how that is even impacting us in ways that we don't fully realize. Yeah, it definitely impacts us grown people. But I would say that it really impacts children and adolescents. So you think about at this point, we have an entire uh, generation who's had a life of screens. I mean, I remember when I didn't have email. So I can picture a world (laughs) with a house phone. Like I can still remember those things. And I'm not that old. But there definitely is a generation that only knows a world Mm. of screens. And um, what we know is that our phones are designed for us to be addicted to them. They are intentionally designed. The lighting of the phone, the blue lighting of the phone, the way that um, it energizes the brain, the way that our brains release serotonin when we get a like or when we get a message or we hear the ding that comes through. That helps to shape an addictive impulse in us. And so we just kind of have to own it. There's some people who do some real practical things. Like, for example, they change their setting to black and white on their phone. And we find that when people do that, they're less likely to check their phone because that blue light is part of what's intoxicating. Okay. So they set up their phone so that they're not getting notices. Okay. That signals them that there is some 
indicator of affirmation. Facebook mm. increased in popularity, for example, when it began to use like buttons. Got it. Right. So it wasn't just the I'm sharing pictures or experiences right. with people. It was the real time affirmation and response from others that began to pull people into. Mm. And I think that serves as an opportunity for us to do some self-evaluation mm. about, hmm. Am I getting my affirmation? Mm-hmm. Am I getting my nod that I'm a decent person or that I have Got good it. things? To, I'm clever or witty or whatever it might be. Oof, ouch. Do Can, I? Yeah. Do I need yeah. this to do that? Yeah. And yeah. and also, of course, it causes us to not develop the muscle of fellowship. Mm. So fellowship can be awkward anyway. Yes. Connecting with people can be difficult. Yes. But if you think about the fact that more and more we're not developing the muscle and developing the ability to manage the anxiety of getting to know and connect with different people. This is one of the reasons why I think we have really high expectations of certain local churches. This does not mean I don't think local churches don't need to rise on up to the occasion. But because we are so inclined to have uh, kind of intoxicated by instant affirmation, Mm. um, the local church is going to be real awkward. Connecting with people socially. Yeah where there's a moment of silence and you can't use your phone, you can't scroll by their story, but you kind of have to sit with them. So in some ways, it's really reshaping us. And so for that reason, it's good to be able to have times where people take a screen Sabbath and or they just push into the awkward. They just recognize, like, you know, I'm not even good at small talk anymore. Wow. And that right now we're noticing that there are just high levels of deep loneliness. Yes. Not just alone, but people are lonely. I think some of that is likely tied to the fact that there are not actual real deep relationships. And then people are afraid of the work. Mm. and the anxiety that it takes to then form them. Woof! That was a lot. But one of the things I got from that is that going to church is good for your brain. Amen, I think so. (laughs) I'm I'm very pro-local church. (laughs) Got it, got it. When faith leaders talk about that publicly, Mm -hmm. hallelujah, one of the things that we started doing at the local church that I attend is we started to have testimony time. Okay. And so people get up and they take anywhere from five to 10 minutes and they share the Lord at work in their life in some way. And what I have noticed is that the vast majority of them, these narratives have been about anxiety, depression, Mm. struggles with mental illness. And there is something really profound Mm. about seeing someone get up (laughs) and saying in front of the whole congregation with tears, sharing this story of being stuck in their bathtub and being so weighed down by depression. And this is a teacher, Mm. someone who's respecting the church, being so weighed down by depression and then sharing out loud the thoughts of what's wrong with you. You should have more faith and talk about God being with them in that Mm. and knowing that God has released them to get the help that they need, that what a loving father who does not seek to see us suffer and struggle alone, but wants us to have healthy brains, right? But that public testimony, that public witness, to see people weeping as they resonated with that same story, to hear that person say out loud, I thought I was going crazy with all these thoughts Mm. of what if your spouse doesn't come home tonight? You know, you're getting a phone call. I bet they're going to say somebody is sick or hurting. So these loops of paranoia, these loops of fear that play in our mind, that play in all of our minds, but to the point where we cannot control it and people are overwhelmed and literally sick and exhausted by it. They are precious and they deserve to be helped (laughs) is the way I think about messing up. Like you are precious. Mm. You deserve to have that attended to. Almost like in the same way, Mm. if... I had a broken arm, it wouldn't be a badge of honor 
to not get it looked at. You were like, yeah. oh, you need a cast. You need to heal it because you see the potential of that arm. Yeah. I like that brain health. I think yeah. we need to make that a thing. Well, and here's the thing. If your arm is broken and you're a part of a system, you're a part of a family, not right. only do you get the care for yourself, you also get the care because you may not be able to make lunches like you used right. to make it. You may not be able to mm. play around with your kid like you used to. You, We are interconnected. So right. for some people, they need to know that their health is tied to a community as well. Mm. So if I'm overwhelmed by feelings of depression and I decide I'm just going to rough it, I can play that game if I want, but that's going to impact my children. It's going to impact my spouse. And while we can pretend that the struggles that we have are not affecting other people, it absolutely is. I remember I had a recent session with uh, my therapist and I was, you know, relating and reflecting on conversation, a kind of impasse that I was having with my wife. And then just talking to somebody about it helped me to see it from a different angle. Mm-hmm. It was almost like I was looking at the situation outside of myself. Right. And then I realized <laughs> the part that I had in it. And then I was able to acknowledge that. And it changed everything. Yeah. She was shocked and grateful. And then I was humbled and had more perspective. And we were able to move forward. Right. And so yeah. I hear, you know, first we can help take away the stigma by receiving that help ourselves talking about it Mm -hmm. any other thoughts that you have about how do we help people see mental health as something that we can do and and encourage Mm -hmm. people to do yeah yeah i mean you know i would say read the bible read it and look for mental distress in it Mm. read it and look for the language read it and look for the examples of people being vexed in their soul. Read the Psalms. I was thinking, I mean, yeah, like, yeah. It, you have so many narratives of yeah. deep lament, of right. paranoia, of fear, yes. of trauma, yeah. of God rescue me from mm. this, this cry. And we don't look at the Psalms and say, like, buck up. You need to be grateful right. to God. <laughs> right? We don't look at the King right. David Psalms that right. way. They are there as the song and prayer book yeah. of Scripture. Right. And so, it reminds us of what we can bring forward to the Lord. This full range of emotions is mm-hmm. what we have. And um, again, if we look at the narratives attentive to recognizing that we have to take care of these bodies, to be good stewards of these bodies, our brains are a part of our bodies. Yes. Uh, maybe that may be the most important part, yes. that the brain is a part of the body. Uh, that's a, it's <laughs> a simple, revolutionary, but, but it's a profound thought. Like yes. we don't think of my brain is a part of my body, so I need to take care of it like I would take care of any yeah. other part of my body. Anybody who's had a concussion, I think this may resonate deeply with them. Yeah. You know, what it means to get a concussion from, you know, football or some incident that you might have had, and then to know that you're thinking more slowly, to know mm. that you're expressing certain emotions much faster and more in a more flooded way, or either wow. you're dulled. You recognize, like, my brain right. got emotions that happen. <laughs> and I think we think about our emotions as something that lives outside of us, or yeah. that they're located literally in our physical heart or something. Right. No, like that's the brain. (laughs) And so I think the more we develop an appreciation for just the truth of how we have been fearfully made, we recognize I need to take care of all the parts of who I am. Brain health is important, and Dr. Edmondson encourages us all to embrace who we are and reminds us to use humor as a healthy coping mechanism. You're listening to Where You're From. I'm Russell Berry. And if you'd like more information about Dr. Christina Edmondson, check out the show notes, which are located in the podcast description. 
The show notes not only contain the talking points for today's show, but they also include a link to Christina's bio, as well as a link to watch a free seven-part documentary series I did called In Pursuit of Jesus. In the series, I travel around the world learning about Jesus from people from vastly different cultures. And that series can be viewed right now for free. Just copy the link in the podcast description or visit whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Mary Jo Clark, Daniel Ryan Day, and Jade Gustafson and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward. I also want to give a quick shout out to Brian and Barry for their help in supporting and promoting Where You're From. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.